All right, so in front of you, you should have notes, Lord willing. Um, we're going to be doing discussion today throughout, so we'll take time and have kind of table discussion along the way, um, so just so you know what those are for. So I want to say up front, they did not pick me for this talk because I'm amazing. They didn't. Um, or because my children are amazing. They are, but in a unique way that's only to them. Um, my hope today is to point you to our great need for God and to God's great goodness and provision through his spirit and his word and his church. As we consider the themes of discipleship and worship in parenting, that's what we'll be talking about today, we're going to focus on two key ideas. So your outline for today in general. Part one is going to focus on biblical examples of parenting, showing both what was done well and what was not done well, and how God noted these in human parenting and care. Part two is going to focus on God, the perfect parent, and how we can follow his example as human parents. Where we will consider and pray through questions together that will hopefully challenge on our hearts, and um, hopefully we'll also offer some conversation starters um, for those who help care um, for others in your life. I'm sure there's a variety of women here today, those who are married and without children, uh, those who perhaps yearn for a child, those who have young nursing babies, or roughhousing toddlers, or emotional teenagers, or adult children, those who are not married, and those who may be unsure of how this talk applies to them. We also have to consider that there are different seasons of parenting. The early years are challenging and blessed in sheer physical and emotional labor. The toddler and middle years are busy and pass super quickly. Teenage years can be filled with growth and conflict and can be exhausting, even more so than the early years, um, as children identify, uh, develop identity separate from you and begin to make life decisions. Parenting an adult child is more of a counselor role, carefully offering advice and support in the life of another adult. So be encouraged, sisters. <laughs> At the heart of parenting is discipleship. So the heart of this talk applies to all followers of Christ. Parenting actually has a number of definitions, but the two most often found are either the raising of a child by his or her parents or the taking care of someone in the manner of a parent. So the core principles we will discuss today applies to biological children, adopted children, grandchildren, children you care for, those who are younger in faith than you that you mentor or disciple in the church, all those things. Remember that discipleship is doing purposeful spiritual good while helping another follow Christ. So this is what we all seek to do, and I pray this time will encourage you in discipleship, whether it's your physical or your spiritual children. All right, so parenting, besides being an act of discipleship, is also one of worship. In Dan Paul's recent evening lesson, he quoted Louis Giglio on worship, and I want to share a little bit of that with you. Worship is our response to what we value most. Worship is about saying, this is what I put first in my life. Worship determines our actions, becoming the driving force for all that we do. So how do you know where and what you worship? Simply follow the trail of your time and your affection, your energy, your money, and your loyalty, and at the end of that trail, you'll find a throne. And whatever or whomever is on that throne is what is of highest value to you. On that throne is what you worship. So we may say we value this thing or that thing more than any other, but the volume of our actions speaks louder than our words. In the end, our worship is more about what we do than what we say. So here's my first question for you to ponder. What do you worship? Do you worship a clean home, godly children, family meals together, healthy kids or kids who are good at sports or kids who get a scholarship or kids who win a Bible sword drill contest? Do you worship children who never fight? 
quiet evenings in a good book. Sometimes I'm worshiping. A movie, storybook, marriage. Is that what you're worshiping? Ease of life. Are you worshiping what other people post on social media or moments that you see other couples having or other families sharing at the park? The question is, where do you spend your time, money, and resources? What do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking about or worrying about? What are you most afraid to lose? So one question we want to consider today is what do we worship other than Christ, especially as it relates to families and parenting? What are our idols, um, especially relating to being in a Christian family, whether it's spiritual or physical? And the other, but the big idea here at the talk, this talk is meant to be a theology of parenting, how God has revealed himself through scripture and shows us our need for him as well as his provision for us. This is also a call to flee from idols we wrongly worship and a call to cling to God alone. This may be applied in our own homes, in the discipling relationship, and as we encourage one another in the church, regardless of marital or child status, God's word applies to us all. Let me pray as we dig in together to this rich bounty. Pray with me. God, thank you for these sisters that you brought today. We are thankful, thankful for them, and thankful that we can be here together um, on this Saturday morning. Uh, thank you that we can sit together without masks. Thank you for coffee. Thank you, um, most of all, for your goodness in your word. God, we pray that your spirit will stir in us, that your word will enlighten us, that our hope will be in you. Give us strength and wisdom. Give my tongue clarity. Um, give everyone patience. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. All right, so number one, the first thing we're going to talk about, the first biblical example we're going to look at is the idea of the permissive parent. So let's talk about what that means and some examples. So Eli is our first example. He is in 1 Samuel. Remember, he's the priest, the one who sees Hannah praying. He thinks she's drunk. Remember that, Eli. Okay, so after she proves that she is in fact crying out to the Lord for a child, he blesses her, and when Hannah brings Samuel to the temple, he shares in her rejoicing and cares for young Samuel. These are great things about Eli. Uh, we see he's present, he's watchful, he's involved um, in the work of the Lord and of his people, except when it comes to his own children. So 1 Samuel 2.12 says, Now the sons of Eli were worthless men. They did not know the Lord. There was a process God had ordained that the people would offer sacrifices. Uh, the priest's servant had to stick a fork in this boiling water and pull out whatever came, and that was how the Lord provided for his people. But Eli's sons, though, demanded the meat before it went into the pot. They wanted to roast it. They wanted it different. They weren't relying on God's provision. So they even threatened the people to take it by force. So if the people said, that's not wrong, that's not what God provided, they would threaten them. So there was no correction. Verse 17 notes, thus the sin of the young men was very great in the sight of the Lord, for the men treated the offering of the Lord with contempt. I want to note to you, it wasn't that Eli didn't care or that he didn't know what was happening. He did care, and he did know what was happening. The story actually gets worse. 1 Samuel 2, 22 through 25 says, Now Eli was very old, and he kept hearing all that his sons were doing to all Israel and how they lay with the women who were serving at the entrance to the tent of meeting. And he, Eli, says to them, why do you do such things? For I hear of your evil dealings with all these people. No, my sons, it's no good report that I hear of the people of the Lord spreading abroad. If someone sins against a man, God will mediate for him. But if someone sins against the Lord, who can intercede for him? Scripture says, but they would not listen to the voice of their father, for it was the will of the Lord to put them to, get, to death. So there's a serious outcome. In 1 Samuel 2, 27 through 36, 
A man of God comes to Eli and says to him, Thus says the Lord, Did I indeed reveal myself to the house of your father when they were in Egypt, subject to the house of Pharaoh? Did I choose him out of all the tribes of Israel to be my priest, to go up to my altar, to burn incense, to wear an ephod before me? I gave to the house of your father all my offerings by fire from the people of Israel. And then here's the key verse. Why then do you scorn my sacrifices and my offerings that I commanded for my dwelling and honor your sons above me? by fattening yourselves on the choicest parts of every offering of my people Israel. So Eli's two sons, Hophni and Phinehas, will die on the same day, and God will raise up one who honors him in their stead. Although Eli was faithful in much of the work of the Lord, he honored his sons above God. Okay, so how this is going to work is that we're going, I'm going to take a quick break, only five minutes. It's going to be super fast. Everything cannot be covered in five minutes. But what the idea is that there's now some questions in front of you for this section. The questions for this are, in what ways do you work hard to keep your kids or help your kids and those around you fight sin? What sin would you rather not mess with or ignore? How does the idol of ease and comfort infiltrate your life? In what ways do you fear man rather than the Lord? Are there ways you honor your children above God? And what could this look like? So I also want you to think in terms of what we've discussed. If you don't have children yet, think of in terms of those you disciple. If you're thinking of having children, think of this is what I think it could look like. If you're raising grandchildren, if you're nannying, if there's people in your household. So think of in terms of what is for you at this moment in your life. And at your table, I'm just giving you five minutes, and you're going to discuss as much as you can. So it may be picking one, que one question and talking through it. It may be each of you saying, this one is the one I really want to think about. But again, the idea of this is that you're going to start here and continue this at home. <laughs> you're going to take it home, talk with others, discuss it with those you meet with, think through it. If you're married, talk to your husband about it. Discuss. Uh, this is just a, a beginning point. Okay, so five minutes at your table, these questions as it relates to Eli, you can start. All right, ladies, that's five minutes already. I know, it's like it lets you skim the beginning of the surface, I understand. We just have so much to cover today. All right, so the next one we'll be talking about, we're going to continue with the idea of a permissive parent, but this is in relationship to King David. I'll just stare at you. That's like a teacher trick. You just stare at the kid who's talking still, you know, until they stop. All right, so David is our next one. Uh, the story of one of David's sons, Absalom, is particularly tragic. Absalom is actually noted in Scripture as a beautiful man, and Scripture notice, um, notes that people loved him. His people loved him. A horrific thing happened. Absalom's sister was raped and thrown aside by one of their half-brothers. Absalom plotted to take revenge and killed the perpetrator. During this whole time, we see in Scripture that David is sorrowful. He's very saddened by these evil events, both after Tamar is hurt and after Absalom takes his revenge. But he does not act. It just notes him as being sorrowful but not doing anything. He allows Absalom later to return to Jerusalem, but even then, it's partial forgiveness. He won't see him. Many years later, Absalom is finally fully forgiven and allowed into the presence of the king, but it seemed that it was too late. Forgiveness had been withheld and action was not taken. Emotions were allowed to simmer and action was slow in coming. So Absalom also slowly works to steal the hearts of Israel from his father. He forms a coup to make himself king. 
David is forced to flee for his life, and Absalom is killed before David, David is able to return to Jerusalem and the throne. But this isn't, of course, the only time that we see an action in David's life. At the end of King David's life, when he's growing old but has not officially named a successor, we read in 1 Kings 1, 5 through 6, Now Adonijah, the son of Haggath, exalted himself, saying, I will be king. And he prepared for himself chariots and horsemen and 50 men to run before him. His father, meaning Adonijah's father, who's David, had never at any time displeased him by asking, why have you done thus and so? Ow. He never once asked him, why do you do that? He never displeased his son. So Adonijah, also very handsome, he was born next after Absalom. Um, but think of that. Absalom's younger brother has never been upset by his dad asking him things he doesn't like. It isn't clear whether this regards Adonijah's life or kingdom, but either way, he's never been upset by his dad asking him something he doesn't want to talk about. This boy, Adonijah, has great audacity. He declares himself king. He flees for his life when Solomon becomes king. He goes behind Solomon's back and asks Solomon's mother Bathsheba for Abishag as his wife. Y'all remember Abishag? She was the one who kept David warm. <laughs> I always wonder, what does that mean exactly? I'm just not going to think about it. But he kept him warm at the end of his life. All right, so he, by asking for her as his wife, he's in an underhanded way seeking to claim the throne again. So you see that this never being corrected is leading to great audacity in this young man that will actually end up, he dies at Solomon's command. So it actually takes his life. So David, decisive in many ways, seems to allow trouble to brew in his household rather than dealing with it directly. This passivity in the man after God's own heart reaps pain for many. So here's your questions. In what ways do you hate to tell your children no, or those you disciple? How does your fear of man influence your parenting decisions? In what ways are you wisely slow to act? Sometimes when we feel something, we need to not act on it. So in what ways are, have you thought of wisely being slow to act? And in what ways are you prone to foolishly delay acting or allow sin to continue with those under your care? What sin in your life and in your home are you waiting to take care of that you need to deal with now? Right. So you have five minutes to just start the conversation. You can begin. All right, ladies, our five minutes are up. It's like a quick it's a speed table. All right, so besides the idea of permissive parenting, we also, the Bible gives us examples of partial parenting. So these are other things to look at. So for partial parenting, our first example is Abraham and Sarah. We know from Scripture that Abraham's faith was commended. Sarah's daughters are said to be like her if we don't fear anything that is frightening. So we see two people who trust God and have faith in so many ways and do so for so many years. In Genesis 11, we read that Sarah is barren. In Genesis 15, which is just a quick read for us, but actually shows many long years of waiting for them, uh, we see that Abraham and Sarah have been waiting a long time and that God promises Abraham that his, offering will be, his offspring will be like the stars of the sky, and Abraham believes him. By chapter 16, it appears that Sarah also believed, but perhaps she felt it was her part to make things happen, as perhaps God was leaving it up to her. So she gives her servant to Abraham to produce a child. Without even reading more, as women, we know that the, what the outcome will likely be. It's not going to be pretty, right? As soon as the child is born, there's contempt and jealousy and anger. Once Isaac is born, who is the intended child of promise, there are further issues. Genesis 21, 8 through 13 notes, 
And the child Isaac grew and was weaned, and Abraham made a great feast on the day that Isaac was weaned. But Sarah saw the son of Hagar the Egyptian, whom she had borne to Abraham, laughing. So she said to Abraham, cast out this slave woman with her son, for the son of this slave woman shall not be heir with my son Isaac. And the thing was very displeasing to Abraham on account of his son. But God said to Abraham, be not displeased because of the boy and because of your slave woman. Whatever Sarah says to you, do as she tells you, for through Isaac shall your offspring be named. And here's God's faithfulness. And I will make a nation of the son of the slave woman also, because he is your offspring. So God keeps his word, but the relationship with all parties is unequal and strained. God is good, even when we mess things up. All right, now we can look at Isaac and Rebekah. Here's another example. In Genesis 25 and 27, we see Isaac and Rebekah. Isaac shows partiality for Esau, who loves to hunt, and Rebekah shows partiality for Jacob, who seems to become a quieter man who dwells among the tents. They both love their children. They want good things for them. You also get the feeling from Scripture that Esau is maybe a little more kind of physically motivated, simplistic in thinking, while Jacob is more on the manipulative side, working to make things happen his way. God will use both of them, but this partiality leads to a family rift. It's not without consequences. Jacob is forced to flee for his life. His mom never sees her favorite son again. Esau gives up his birthright. Both of them, both Isaac and Rebekah, know their boys have sworn to destroy one another. So this partiality causes great destruction. Our third example of partiality, and there's many more, but we just have time for three today, is Jacob. So the forename Jacob. Jacob, who will later be renamed Israel, has a wonderful true story as well. Genesis 29 through 50 recounts his life. So after fleeing to his mother's people, Jacob grows up in many ways. He works diligently. He is himself tricked by his uncle. Um, He's given a different bride. He continues to work, and his family grows. There's certainly underlying issues, as he loved one wife more than the other. Every time I read the Behold, There Was Leah part, I cringe. I just hurt for her. The wives who are in it to win it, they give their handmaids to try to produce the most heirs, so hoping that Jacob will love them best. But we know that still God is working in Jacob. This man is renamed Israel, and he will be the father of the men who will become the 12 tribes. Right, Rebecca, though, has two sons, Joseph and Benjamin. After she dies, these two boys hold a special place in their father's heart because he loves her more, right? So while Joseph is still young, God begins to give Joseph one of these boys dreams, which he openly and perhaps unwisely shares. His brothers kind of start to despise him. And then Israel kind of foolishly stirs the pot by giving Joseph a special coat, only to him, in a family full of competitive children and wives. Probably not the best idea. We see God's redemption, though, still through pain, as Joseph is betrayed by his brothers and taken to Egypt, but where God continues to work as the boys, through difficulty and humiliation, are brought together and saved from death and famine. So again, we see God working in all of this. Despite human sin and foolishness, God has his plan, and he will carry it out. Praise God. Okay, so here are your questions for partial parenting to think about in your own life. In what ways do you lean toward one or more of your children than the others? How does competition for love or affection or sports or achievements or whatever play a part in your family dynamic? Which of your children's sin struggles bother you or embarrass you differently than the others? And ladies, I will tell you, usually it's the one you struggle with the most. Most often, our sin struggles is the one that we most hate to see in our children. So something to think of. (laughs) 
how do you think God would see your children's struggles and sin? Would he see it differently or would he kind of see it all as the same? So you have five minutes. All right, ladies, that's five minutes. Welcome back. Thank you. Five minutes is so quick. All right, so... Okay, so besides permissive parenting and partial parenting, we also see examples in God's word of proud parenting. Uh, So Hezekiah, who we usually think of as a a great example, and who was in so many ways, we're looking at 2 Chronicles 29 through 33, 2 Kings 18 through 22. Hezekiah did some great things. And again, praise God for this, right? I feel like this was so encouraging to me in scripture is to see It's so infrequently all one or the other, but you see humans who do things well and humans who struggle with sin, because that's what we all are. So praise God that in the Bible, he gives us real things. So helpful. All right, so Hezekiah and the people under his leadership, they tore down the idols, they repaired the house of the Lord, they reinstated Passover, and they encouraged worship of the Lord alone. Second Chronicles 31.20 actually describes Hezekiah this way. He did what was right and good and faithful before the Lord his God. It's wonderful, right? Um, after this, though, because of this good things, God doesn't keep him from hard things. So Sennacherib of Assyria is threatening Jerusalem. More than this, he confuses the people by sending his leaders uh, to speak trouble. He keeps telling them that bad, you know, Assyria is coming, they're all going to die, reminding them of Assyria's great power and speaking out against the Lord and against Hezekiah. In response to this, Hezekiah do, does what you should. He, he goes to Isaiah, they cry out to the Lord together. The Lord sent angels who cut off all the mighty warriors and commanders and officers in the camp of the king of Assyria. He says this amazing thing. When Sennacherib returns to Assyria, his own sons kill him. So there's complete victory. After this great victory, though, Hezekiah becomes sick near death, and God spares him. But this is when Scripture first begins to talk about the pride in Hezekiah's heart. Hezekiah does repent. God's wrath didn't come on Israel at that time. So this whole section of Scripture tells us that Hezekiah became very rich and very great and very proud. An envoy comes from Babylon during this time. He welcomes them and shows them everything um, kind of in the palace and the surrounding area. And it's kind of noted in the sense of that he was showing off, showing off all this great stuff, all the storehouses, all the treasure. Judgment is called for by God through Isaiah the prophet, but Hezekiah is glad when the judgment will fall on later generations and not on his own. So judgment will come, but not on him. It'll come on his children. And he kind of gives a, at least it's not me, response. So again, you see a different side of his heart during this time, and it's sad. Manasseh is Hezekiah's son. He becomes king at age 12. He works great evil. He rebuilds the idols and altars. He encourages false worship. He even burns his son as sacrifices. He encourages fortune telling and sorcery. So it's very dark. Certainly we know that Manasseh saw both sides of his father's character. And the Bible doesn't clearly say this happened because. But it should kind of give us pause to think about in what ways do we truly follow God? And in what ways are we building our own kingdoms? And how does this affect our children? All right, so your questions now, after this section, there's kind of a two-part. So I want you to think about, um, first in the section of pride, in what ways are you proud of your children, which can be good, but you want to think about it. 
Do you feel godly joy or human adoration? How can you encourage your children in their accomplishments, whether it's sports or academics, spiritual discipline, whatever it is, in a godly manner? What does that look like? How can we do this differently from the world? After that, I also, you're going to have two sections. The section overview, which kind of covers everything, and this has to all be in five minutes because there it is. Time constraints. All right, so by God's grace, here's your questions for that. What positive characteristics do you see from what we've discussed so far? I want you to think about in your parenting, how do you see God's grace? And, or if you're discipling some, or in what ways in the relationships you're in now, what are you like, I think the Lord has really helped me in this. So don't just be on the, these are all the things I do terribly in a rocket. Think about the, the good things as well as by God's grace. Also, by God's grace, what characteristics do you see in your parenting or discipleship that need to be devoted to prayer and God-honoring work? Uh, What truth helps you fight shame when parenting or discipleship doesn't go the way you want it to because it will not? What themes of God's sovereignty and care do you see in these examples? And how could you apply these principles that we've talked about so far in serving in the church, specifically through discipleship either of your children or of others? Right, So we only have five minutes. I'll tell you when. Get through everything you can in those five minutes. You can begin. Thanks. Welcome back. Welcome back. I don't, did anybody use the restroom? <laughs> it's good to hear you all talking, though. I love that. That's great. All right. So the first part, we were looking at what God's Word kind of give the examples that he gives us. And now we're going to talk about the example of the perfect parent. And it's not me. It totally isn't. Not even anywhere close. But it is our Lord. God was, has been so faithful um, to give us both his word, his spirit, and his people, as well as his example. As I was preparing um, this talk, I interviewed some moms. And, and these two kind of phrases captured some of what many noted and felt. First one said... It's okay, there's no formula, only Jesus. I thought being a good Christian parent meant a certain thing. I had little to no grace for my kids or myself. I would tell other moms to be careful how they judge others. A second mom said, I was so desperate to do it, to do parenting right, I would have taken any advice and made it a formula. But there's really no way to make it or keep it perfectly. So one more time. Let me say, we cannot parent perfectly, but we have a high priest who knows our weaknesses. We have God's word to guide us, his spirit to strengthen us, and his example to help us. All right, so our triune God is the perfect parent. He sees us and knows us and loves us. He knows every moment of triumph, and he knows every moment of shame that you will have as a parent. In fact, he knew it before the foundation of the earth. And whether it is your self-righteousness or your inability to act, or your willful sin. He saw it and knew it and chose you and sent Jesus his son, who's our perfect brother, according to Hebrews, who died for you and for me and rose again. We cannot earn such grace. I want to challenge you to see the goodness of God, our example, and how we can never possibly attain perfection and how much we need his saving grace. First, we note that God knows his children. Let me read some verses to you. Jeremiah 1.5, before I formed you in the womb, I knew you, and before you were born, I consecrated you. Acts 15, 7 through 8, after there had been much debate, Peter stood up and said to them, brothers, you know that in the early days God made a choice among you, that by my mouth the Gentiles should hear the word of the gospel and believe, and God, who knows the heart, bore witness to them by giving them the Holy Spirit just as he did to us. 
Luke 16, 15, and he said to them, you are those who justify yourselves before men, but God knows your hearts. Romans 8, 26 through 28. Likewise, the Spirit helps us in our weakness, for we do not know what to pray for as we ought, but the Spirit himself intercedes for us with groanings too deep for words, and he who searches the hearts knows what is the mind of the Spirit. 2 Timothy 2.19, but God's firm foundation stands, bearing the seal, the Lord knows those who are his. 1 John 3.19-20, by this we know that we are of the truth and reassure our hearts before him. For whenever our hearts condemn us, God is greater than our hearts and he knows everything. So sisters, how encouraging and humbling that God knows us through and through. As Brad noted last week in Isaiah 13-23, through We are indeed surrounded by enemies, and the problems we face are serious. Pornography and sexual abuse, neglect, sexual and gender identity confusion, social media issues, human trafficking, drugs, these are all real and present dangers for ourselves and our children and for those we disciple. However, God is greater still. He knows our weaknesses and our dangers and our fear, and he has provided a way out for us, not the world's way, but his way. So I first want you to note how God provides a way of escape in the gospel. Matt Smethers noted when he was preaching on Zechariah 3 that God saw Joshua the high priest's sin. Satan is there accusing Joshua, and he is indeed deeply filthy, but the Lord speaks on his behalf and defends him. God does not look away or ignore our sin as parents. He's righteous. He sees it. And a sacrifice must be made to cleanse us. Jesus himself paid our debt, paid the penalty of our sins so we could be free from sin. So now when we confess it, our sin, our sin of not being enough, of pride in the wrong things, of sinful amounts of anger, of idolizing our children or our families, God is faithful and just to forgive our sins and to cleanse us from unrighteousness. He is both just and the justifier of his children. So looking back at Isaiah 13 through 23, We were challenged that God uses the difficulties of life, and I would certainly include parenting and discipleship in these circumstances, to show that no other can save, and that we can trust him and him alone. No one but Jesus can save your wayward child or your self-righteous child. No one but Jesus can bring you peace. Sisters, I have to admit, I've wasted many holidays, for example, waiting for the perfect Hallmark moment, and they often don't come. They pretty much don't. I don't live in a movie. I may want my kids to live nearby and marry a certain kind of spouse and have adorable, adoring grandchildren that live on my street. That's my dream, okay? But that may not be what God sees as best for them. So what do I want more? Do I want what God says is best or what I want? It may take difficulty and time and distance for our children to know God. Isn't that worth any difficulty here on earth? And will I trust him in that? God also provides examples for us to follow. We can follow his example through knowing and praying for our children, through proclaiming his word, through focusing on discipleship rather than on results, and through loving one another. Let me unpack that a little bit. The first is knowing and praying for our children. Although we cannot know the hearts of our children like God does, we're limited, we can often know how they are struggling and where they are because we're in their lives in a very unique way. This is a place of honor and a place of difficulty. As we see more and are hurt when they are hurt and have joy when they have joy, and in many ways our roles change in their lives over the years. We know how best to pray for them and to pray for their heart toward the Lord. That's why we handed out that book. So it's great. If you don't have it, I hope you get it. It's wonderful. 
It helps us not to just pray what we want or think about all the time or are worried about, but it helps us pray scripture. That's great. Um, we also have God's example in proclaiming his word. So we act as a sort of prophet. Do you ever think of yourself that way as a prophet? Proclaiming the word of God to a people who may or may not want to hear the message at the time. Um, and regardless of how they respond to the message. Think of Jeremiah and Isaiah, Malachi and Hosea, who were given difficult messages to share with the remnant of God's faithful and with the ignorant who needed to know God's word and with the wayward who were fighting against God's word, which is exactly what we are doing with our children and those we disciple. Our example, one good one here in Jeremiah, he pointed the people to God with little to no change. So over the years, he proclaimed and proclaimed, and we hear very little of any change that happens. Hear his command and struggle in Jeremiah 3, 12 through 13. Go and proclaim these words toward the north and say, Return, faithless Israel, declares the Lord. I will not look on you in anger, for I am merciful, declares the Lord. I will not be angry forever. Only acknowledge your guilt, that you rebelled against the Lord your God and scattered your favors among foreigners under every green tree, and that you have not obeyed my voice, declares the Lord. Jeremiah has a difficult life, right? He gets stuck in mire. Not many people listen to him. He's often ignored. In Jeremiah 4.19, we hear how he feels and understand how this can feel in our own lives when those that we care for and love stray from God. He cries out, my anguish, my anguish. I writhe in pain of the walls of my heart. My heart is beating wildly. I cannot keep silent. For I hear the sound of the trumpet, the alarm of war. This may sound familiar, especially to those of you who have children who have strayed away. Pray for wisdom, sisters, and pray for timing. But may we faithfully proclaim God's word in our homes and wherever God places us, regardless of whether we're listened to or not. All right, another one. Focus on faithfulness rather than results. For me, this is the point around which parenting often rotates. How do we worship God in our parenting? We should be faithful. All right, so am I working, here's some questions to think about, to create a child in my own image or in society's perfect image, or am I working to point my child to Christ? Do I most want her to be beautiful or him to be popular or them to be athletic or well-liked? Or do I want them to love God's word and his people and his house? Do I want them to look holy or to be holy? Am I okay to watch them hurt or struggle? Or am I willing to be embarrassed if it means their hearts will fully belong to God? On some level, or on some level, do I want them to be successful for my glory? When my kids misbehave, I don't say if, but when. When my kids misbehave, am I angry because it reflects negatively on God? Does he even care about that infraction? Or is it because it embarrasses me? Lamentations 3, 22 through 23 reveals God's faithfulness. It says, because of the Lord's great love, we are not consumed, for his compassions never fail. They are new every morning. Great is your faithfulness. Sisters, is that the faithful love that we show by God's grace and with the help of his spirit? Is it new every morning? Is it great? Or is it my expectations and pride that are great? I can't save my kids. I can't make them holy. I can't make them love Jesus. I can barely make them pick up their towels or brush their teeth. For real. I can faithfully, by God's grace and with his spirit, point them to God and remind them of God's love and provision for them. We can pray and read and discuss the word together. We can love them, and we beg God to change their hearts. 
One last point. I want us to see that God also has given us the example to love one another. God is the perfect parent, and he sees our sin. He provided a way out. Before that, he gave us the law to reveal our sin to us. Yet, despite his perfect law, we choose to go against him. We choose our own way. How much more so, sisters, will our children, who, like the examples we shared earlier, do not have perfect parents, but live daily with sinful parents and families? If perfect law made perfect children, we would not need grace. Please apply this to our parenting. Perfect law will not make perfect children. So whatever law we make for ourselves, sleeping with your children or not sleeping with your babies, breastfeeding or bottle feeding, public school, private school, homeschool, vaccinated or not, organic or homegrown, homegrown or store-bought, the law, the law will not save your children. The law will not save your children. Only God can. So when a church member's son or daughter posts something online that's sinful, how will you react? Will you think about how that mom messed up and that's why her child must have committed that sin? Or will you remember that we are all sinners in need of grace? Beggars telling other beggars where to find bread. When a child, maybe your own, shares something foolish in youth group, because it's going to happen, will you feel shame or will you pray knowing it is God who will save that child? We should be bearing one another's burdens rather than turning away from one another based on ideas that God did not clearly speak on in Scripture. And we surely better not turn away from one another because our children, like ourselves, are sinners in need of God's saving grace. All right, I'll start wrapping up. <laughs> Sisters, who do you disciple and who do you worship? Romans 12.1 says, I appeal to you, therefore, brothers, by the mercies of God, to present your bodies as a living sacrifice, holy and acceptable to God, which is your spiritual worship. Um, a friend of mine who's a teacher taught me that that word worship actually binds together the idea of worship and service, that they're, they're integrated in that word. It's united. Parenting is certainly worship and service, and our days are spent as a living sacrifice when we follow God's example for this difficult task. Our idols will never fill us. They will certainly not save us, and they can destroy us. God has not given you someone else's family or someone else's struggles or someone else's joys. He knows you, and he's given you what he sees as good for you, for your benefit and for his glory. Will you trust him in this? Will you put away idols and worship God through parenting or whatever he has for you right now and receive this good that he has for you? All right, so five, one more set of questions, right? You have five, five more minutes, and then I'll wrap us up for real. Okay, there's two sets of questions that I want you to consider. The first is a set of idolatry questions. These are kind of meant to be just personally heart-probing to think about. Um, we know the right answer, but what is the actual answer? So think of what do you worship? Where do you put your time, money, and resources? What do you wake up in the middle of the night thinking or worrying about? What are you most afraid to lose? And then also the questions from this section in general. What does it look like to walk in faithfulness with less emphasis on results? How careful are you to judge other children or moms or families based on a child's behavior? How can you pray and practice being more gracious in your own parenting and as you look at the parenting of others? In what ways are you tempted to act as the Holy Spirit rather than a fellow sinner with your children? How do you share the gospel in your parenting? In what ways do you point your children to yourself? And in what ways do you point them to Christ? What hope do you have for your children and share with them? In what ways are you working for results rather than being a faithful servant of Jesus? All right, so you have five minutes.
All right, ladies. Welcome back. <laughs> Hello. Good to see you. Okay, awesome. All right, so in conclusion, I want to read to you Psalms 33, 13 through 22. The Lord looks down from heaven. He sees all the children of man. From where he sits enthroned, he looks out on all the inhabitants of the earth. He who fashions the hearts of them all and observes all their deeds. The king is not saved by his great army. A warrior is not delivered by his great strength. The warhorse is a false hope for salvation, and by its great might it cannot rescue. Behold, the eye of the Lord is on those who fear him, on those who hope in his steadfast love, that he may deliver their soul from death and keep them alive in famine. Our soul waits for the Lord. He is our help and our shield, for our heart is glad in him, because we trust in his holy name. Let your steadfast love, O Lord, be upon us, even as we hope in you. So ladies, the king is not saved by his army, and our children are not saved by our good works or their education or wealth. We hope in the Lord. We faithfully walk and beg him to capture our children's hearts and desires. We will watch them struggle. If life is messy, it doesn't mean that we're doing something wrong necessarily. Otherwise, Jesus would have had a comfortable, easy life in death. He didn't, and likely neither will we. We struggle together, but the Lord is strong and the Lord is good. We hope in the Lord. Press on. If anyone would have perfect children based on being a good example or setting clear laws and enforcing them with perfect grace and love, then we would all be perfect, but we're not. We're to be faithful and trust God with the results. The Lord is strong and the Lord is good. We hope in the Lord. I did want to just again mention that um, Haley is on maternity leave, so maybe give her a couple more months before you contact her. But I do hope that this is the beginning of an ongoing conversation. So guys, if you have a question and you want to talk about something, email me. I won't have the answers, all of them, but I'm happy to talk to you about it, and we could find you somebody who does. I hope that all of us are in discipleship relationships where we continue having these discussions. I hope these are questions you can use at home to talk about with husbands and with friends and, and just to continue that discussion. Our elders are happy to talk about it. Bible study groups, there's plenty of places. So I just hope that today is not the end of this parenting discussion, but that it's a beginning. And so those questions are yours to take home. So thank you. Let me pray for us. God, I thank you for these sisters and thank you for their patience and listening. And thank you that we could be together this morning. God, help us to be faithful. Um, help us to flee from idolatry and worship you alone. Help us to disciple those you give us to disciple. Thank you for your word. Thank you for your spirit. Thank you for your love for us. Um, may we be faithful, Lord, and trust you with the results. In Jesus' name, amen.